Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 to 19. The fall of man. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you mustn't eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, curse to you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, 
and to dust you will return. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 12 to 19. Death through Adam, life through Christ. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for welcoming an interloper from the 9.30 service. As I came in, someone who better be, remain nameless said, um, I'm really looking forward to this because I don't understand a word of it and uh, you're going to put it straight. So no pressure there. And I'm very aware that I'm also standing in for Donald Hay. Uh, so no pressure there either. I certainly need to pray. I think we should all pray. Father God, as we come to your word, give us clarity, give us an understanding, help us above all else to be listening for what you have to say to us, both individually and corporately. 
And so we ask your blessing on your word now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. What marks us out as human? What is the difference between us as human and the rest of creation? It's an interesting question and one that gets posed fairly regularly. And by and large, the answers, nearly all, uh, always are to do with attributes. Humans have language. That's what marks us out. Well, does it? Not necessarily. There are many animals that have a form of language. Humans can think abstractly, conceptually, and so on. And you have a list of attributes that say, well, this makes us human and it makes us different. But of course, the answer we have is that it is our inheritance that makes us different from the rest of humanity, uh, the rest of the world, the rest of creation. Our inheritance as made in the image of God. Just prior to the passage that we had read uh, by Jim in Genesis, we read in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 that God says, let's make man in our image. No other part of creation is granted that special creative touch, that special relationship with the creator to be made in the image. This is our inheritance. No matter what we do as humans, our DNA, if you like, our divine spiritual DNA is that of our creator. And it marks us up. And that, the heart of that, the essence of that, is what this passage in Romans is about. The second Adam. Incidentally, it's also the heart of a debate and a challenge to our faith over the coming generation. And we'll talk about that a little later because it hits us right at the basis, the fundamental uh, nature of our witness as Christians in our own culture. Let's have a look at the passage from Romans then. In chapter 4 of Romans, Paul has been articulating the way of justification for sinners, the way God justifies sinners, the way God accounts them righteous while still being sinners. Justification. When I was a small child, I learned it. It was just as if I'd never. Justification. Paul talks about this in chapter 4, and in the first 11 verses of the chapter 5 that we, we, that we read from, he lists the blessings that come to those that are so justified, the blessings of the spiritual life that now inhabits those that have been so justified. Peace with God, joy, hope, and love. These are the fruit of those justified by faith through grace in God, those brought as clean into his presence. Now, he turns from that list and places Christ's work of reconciliation, of justification, in its historical context. He puts it in its theological place in the divine plan. And that's what we have in these verses from 12 to 19. Of course, what he's doing as well at the same time as giving us this history lesson, if you like, is reminding the Romans that their inheritance 
their status as human before God and freed from the shackles of death is secure. Now to do so, Paul uses a rhetorical device, if you like, a, uh, a, a way of uh, speaking. And it's to use balancing clauses. As this, so that. As this, so that. And the balancing acts are the work of Adam on the one hand and the work of Christ on the other. And there were intended, I believe, um, and uh, the folk that I've read seem to think, there were intended to be three of these as this, so that. Uh, but he starts one in verse 12 and then in typical Pauline way gets carried away with something a little different and so there's a parenthesis. So that's the structure of our parent. Uh, of our passage. We start in verse 12 with an as clause. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. So for Paul, the whole of humanity existed in the person of Adam. It's interesting that one translation of Adam from the Hebrew is humanity, the word humanity. So when Adam sins and death enters, the sin is humanity's. And so are the consequences. And we shall see subsequently, with the as clauses later, so with Christ shall all be made alive. So in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. His righteousness is also credited to humanity as Adam's sin is credited to humanity. It might help us to remember the context of this letter just a little bit. This was written probably in AD 57, the last letter he wrote before his actual incarceration, as it were, in Rome. And it was written to the Roman church, which could well have been established by then for maybe 15 years. There is a likelihood that the church first started in Rome as a result of people who had been at the Pentecost Passover returning to Rome. So it was a Jewish Christian church in the heart of the Roman Empire and it was not a church that Paul founded and it seemed to be doing all right, seemed to be flourishing. So these are people, his readership, initial readership, are people who are very well nuanced in Hebrew history and would be intimate with the Torah, the works of the law, uh, what we know as the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible. And the Hebrews had an idea of the corporate personality. And it's seen throughout their history. The sin of one, for instance, at Ai, was the sin of all. And the righteousness of one, through their history, was often accounted to the people, their leaders in particular. Where there is a righteous leader, it is accounted as righteousness to the people of Israel. And they flourish, and they grow, and they follow their God. There is an understood idea of corporate uh, uh, solidarity and responsibility that Paul is appealing to here. And, and it's not something that is, uh, well, it's something that's alien, really, to our society. But his readership would have understood that. So when he talks about the inheritance of Adam, they would have understood immediately that this was a corporate uh, inheritance. Adam is mankind, so all suffer as he did from the result of his sin. And we inherit, if you like, the gene of sin and death from Adam. If you eat of the tree, you will die, it says. 
and he ate and we died. So for Paul, what we have in Adam is the alienation of humanity from God. If there had been a so clause in verse 12, F.F. Bruce thinks it might have read something like, so through one man, God's way of righteousness was introduced and life by righteousness. We don't get that. Instead, Paul gets distracted. It suddenly occurs to him that he has to explain to his Jewish readers why there are just two stages he's proposing, the balances between two, the work of Adam and the work of Christ, and not in three stages, which they would have expected, the work of Adam, the work of Moses, the lawgiver, and then the work of the Messiah. So now he brings up this issue of the law in uh, verses 13, 14, 15 and 16. So for the Jew, the law defines sin, and by defining it, also defines the way to avoid it. So Moses was the lawgiver, and in that he creates the means by which the covenant with God can be kept and the relationship with God maintained. However, before the law, verse 13, before the law, there was sin. Sin existed before the law. God's judgment of the flood is proof of the consequences of Adam's fall. And Paul is making it quite clear that the law is not the end of the story in terms of God's plan for humanity. The law is only significant in that it comes as a preparatory measure before the second Adam. It prepares us for the second Adam because it highlights sin. And because through the law we can see sin for what it really is, that which separates us from God. But the law cannot save us. So Moses is not part of this divine restoration of balance, this theological as this, so that. The law cannot destroy death. Sacrifices can be made, but death remains. And the cure for sin is ultimately not the law, and we remain inheritors of death. And then in verse 17, he brings us back. He draws us back to the theme of the second hand. But grace is offered through Christ's righteousness. For if, verse 17, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, the gift of justification which he has already outlined in chapter 4, the fruit of which he has given at the beginning of this chapter. So then, for these last two verses, 18 and 19, we return to our balancing clauses. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act results in justification and life for all people. As one trespass condemnation, so one righteous act justification and life. And then in 19, for just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man the many will be made righteous. As disobedience condemns, so obedience saves. In fact, verse 19 is probably an echo of Isaiah 53. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. How can this balance come about? How can, as Adam bringing sin, 
so Christ bring righteousness by undoing the effects of Adam's fall because he bears their iniquities. He bears our iniquities. It's the heart of our creed. It is justification. In these balancing clauses, Paul draws us to this restored balance. One Adam separates, the second Adam draws together. Incidentally, second and last Adam are interchangeable, really, uh, in terms of the way it's said. One Adam separates, the second Adam draws together. The first Adam brings death, the last Adam brings life. God's plan for humanity is blocked by the disobedience of the first Adam, but finds fulfillment in the obedience of the second, and a circle is complete. Our humanity is restored to its potential, and we are freed from the chains of the law. As creatures made in God's image, in the Imago Dei, we are now free to seek him and be complete in him. We can now be restored into his presence. The work of that second Adam is to reopen the direct lines of communication that were severed by the first Adam. We can now relate to our creator, the one of which we have just the palest and glimmering of reflections. And we do so as if sinless, justified by faith through grace. So what is the takeout for us? These verses contain nothing less than the definition of our humanity. Our spiritual DNA and history is defined and described. Our inheritance is as inheritors of Adam and therefore those unique in creation as made in the image of God but bound by death through Adam's disobedience and sin but also inheritors through the action and obedience of the second or last Adam, Christ, of grace and of life eternal with God. It marks us out from the rest of creation. And it's our gospel. Our good news is the best news in the world. Uh, but how does this speak to us in our experience of the world and the culture we find around us? It would appear that God is not alone in wanting to provide a second Adam, a new humanity. Man has always wanted to break the power of death after all. I read this uh, article in the Observer recently. It was uh, headlined, Join the Immortals. And uh, in it, the writer Catherine Mayer says this, Across the developed world, the average lifetime has lengthened by 30 years since the beginning of the 20th century. There's also a growing trend to believe we can control death. Science has already added decades to our lives and must surely be on the verge of adding many more. Barely a day goes by without a media report of a breakthrough that seems to promise another lifestyle choice to defer death altogether. Now we can see these kinds of articles probably most weeks in many newspapers. However, this article was in the science section of the newspaper in a section dealing with nanotechnology and its applications to medical science. And there is a philosophy behind this that I think we, as people born in the image of God, need to take, created in the image of God, need to take note of. It's the philosophy of the evolutionary materialist who uses science as a weapon to fulfill the dream of a new humanity. There's a growing philosophical and social movement, which a number of you have probably come across, uh, called transhumanism. 
and it's defined as the use of technological and other means to become post-humans. And the core belief in this philosophy is that the human species is not the end of the evolutionary trail, but it's either the beginning or merely a way station. One of the leaders in this uh, movement, a guy called Bart Klosko, wrote in a book called The Fuzzy Future, Biolo biology is not destiny. It was never more than a tendency. It was just nature's first quick and dirty way to compute with meat. Chips are destiny. And he, of course, means silicon chips. As the new millennium dawned, philosopher Nick Bostrom wrote this, what is transhumanism? Human nature is a work in progress, a half-baked beginning that can be remolded in desirable ways through intelligent use of enhancement technologies. And Catherine Hayes of Chicago University wrote this when she was trying to describe the aims of transhumanism and where uh, we might go as post-humans. In the post-human, there are no essential differences or absolute demarcations between bodily existence and computer simulation. No differences between cybernetic mechanism and biological organism. No differences between robot technology and human goals. Now, one level, there's nothing new in any of this, of course. It's an extension of humanism, really. No bounds have been fixed to the improvement of faculties. The perfectibility of man is absolutely indefinite, de Condorcet wrote, and he wrote that in 1795. So we've been having these uh, movements and thoughts for a long time. What is different now, of course, is that for the first time, science and technology can make some of these things appear to be on the way, to appear to be a reality. The science bit is hugely exciting in many, many ways. I'm not a scientist, although I'm involved in um, genetics to a certain extent because I'm a director of a charity, which is a medical research charity. And it is exciting, but it's the philosophy behind some of it we need to be careful of. The possibilities of this new science are, in the words of the philosophers behind it, to create a new humanity, a second Adam that will, in fact, eventually beat death. Because to them, we are nothing more than a biological mechanism, a machine, to be valued entirely and exclusively by what we can do. Unless we think this is just fringe crankiness, this is just on the edge of stuff, it's worth pointing out that uh, quite a few years ago now, in 2002, the US government set up a program to converge nanotechnology, biotechnologies, and information technologies and that was with their science foundation, the National Science Foundation, and the Department of Commerce. And their director said that this NBIC program was the, for the express purpose of enhancing human performance. Billions of dollars are going into this research. Uh, already, there has been developed neural synthetic junctions, which means basically that the human body, the physical human biological entity can be enhanced synthetically with cybernetic um, and nanotechnological additions. 
Technology is encouraging and empowering transhuman ideology. That's what's new. Many have dreamed of becoming like gods. Hubris started in the Garden of Eden, after all, and carried on in a line through the Tower of Babel. But now we have the technology to see how we can begin to control our own physical destiny. Well, what is our response to all of this? First of all, we need to know our gospel and understand the danger to it. We must understand Christ, the second Adam, and his work in bringing new life to our essentially unchanging humanity. We must understand that the definition of our humanity comes not in our physical makeup, but in our relationship, what God has done for us in making us and redeeming us. We need to understand that new technologies need divorcing from the machine philosophy that defines humanity purely in terms of function. We need to claim science and technology as a service to God and a gift from God. As Christians, we have to say, and say it loudly and often, that science is part of our devotion and worship to God. We remain his creatures, already redeemed by the work of the second Adam. The second Adam, who in the words of Bruce again, F.F. Bruce again, becomes the inaugurator of a new humanity. It is Christ's sacrifice that, that inaugurates a new humanity. And we have to understand that the doctrines that motivate and provide the motor to some of this science and technology is idolatrous. It's the substitution of God with technology and the total rejection of grace and the Holy Spirit. So that's the first response. These verses show us where we have to be based and we show us that we have to rely on the work of Christ not on the work of science. The second thing is we must live the risen life as disciples of the second Adam. The scientific materialist says you are what you can do and you can be perfected by science and technology. God says to us, you are valued irrespective of what you can do and you are perfected only through Jesus in me. We must live out that doctrine daily in the way we value and treat each other. If we are not different in this respect to others, how will people know there is a difference? Our actions and attitudes must practice that understanding that we live entirely by grace, that the work of the second Adam was not to make us better, but to serve us so that we can be made as if clean to God. The second Adam offers us a gift, a gift of life. He doesn't offer us more things to do so we can beat death. We are offered a gift. We are called to be disciples. We are called to be in the service of God. And that's exemplified by the life of Christ. He chose the weak. He didn't enhance them. Their weakness made he op he, his strength was seen through their weakness, as Paul himself said, the more I decrease, the more he increases. He healed, but he didn't perfect. Lazarus, after all, remained mortal. And we rest in God, not on ourselves. Our perfection comes later, by him and in his presence, when all things will be made perfect. We are already immortal. 
through the work of the second Adam. We are here in advance of science and technology, which seeks to make a second Adam to defy death. And we have to demonstrate that grace in the life of the last Adam, in our own lives. And we have to show it as a better way. Our challenge is to demonstrate the peace, joy, hope and love that Paul starts this chapter with as the fruit of the Spirit, as the fruit of the justified person. We have to show that and we have to show our integrity in the image of God. And that is the real way to reflect God's light. Be encouraged. The victory is ours already. The victory is won. The second Adam has carried the day. Amen.